guys ever notice every time a kid reads scripture, we clap for them, but the adults, we don't? Um, but then Bob, but well, wait, wait, wait. So the Bob walks by me today and says, one person clap for me. It's my wife. That's Gina right there. So uh, yeah, so, so <laughs> there you go. Now, wait, wait, wait. Bob, that means more people clap for your wife than for you. <laughs> so let's, but you know, anybody who's met Gina knows that, that it should be that way. So... Whatever you do, whenever somebody comes up to you and they use that statement, you know you got to pay attention to the next thing that they say. Like, whatever you do, make sure you bring your kids to VBS this week, right? Whatever you do, make sure you check the lane next to you before you merge, right? So whatever you do is always followed by a really important statement. Well, what we're in in the book of Colossians here is kind of a whatever you do sandwich. So last week, we ended with a passage of scripture that had whatever you do in it. And today we're in a passage of scripture that says whatever you do in it. And, and so we should talk about uh, our life and what shows up in the whatever you do, right? So let's think about that for a second. Whatever you do, that's everything. So the average person right now, more or less, is going to live for about 80 years. Now, it's actually 78 points. Now, some of you are like, oh, shoot. So I, I just, a couple of you squirmed. And some of you are like, 80 years, that's forever. But that's average. So right now, roughly average, 80 years. And what that means is the average person, if you're entirely average, you're going to spend 28 of those years sleeping. And you're going to spend seven years trying to fall asleep. So that's, that's the average person right there, okay? You're going to spend 11 years staring at a screen, not for work purposes, okay? You're going to spend 1.3 years exercising. Now, some of you are like, 1.3 years of exercise? No way, that's impossible. That's so much time. Well, you're going to spend 11 years eating, you're going to spend 10 times as much energy and time given to eating than exercise. That probably explains a lot, doesn't it? Um, you're going to spend 13 years of your life working. You're going to spend three years of your life on vacation, which means this is what you have left for everything else. 14 years of your life. Now, when I was kind of playing around with these numbers, what I did is I went ahead and I took out sleep, I took out trying to sleep, I took out screen time and exercise, which is largely stuff that we do alone, because that's all alone stuff. That's just me stuff. And if you take all of that out, what is left is 44% of your life. Now, what does this 44% of your life right here have in common with one another? You have the ability to Spend that 44% of your time with people. Now, some of you, as introverts, you're like, I'm going to spend 4% of my time with people. Uh, the extroverts are like, I'm going to spend all of my 44% of the time. But you have the ability to spend up to 44% of your life doing what I call peopling. <laughs> Being around other people. So it should come as no surprise that in this sandwich of whatever you do statements that Paul makes in the book of Colossians, he talks to us in the middle of that sandwich about our peopling. 
talks to us about our relationships with one another. And he gives us six categories of people as examples. And none of us are all six of these categories. And none of us is none of these categories. We are all at least one of these categories. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend most of our time on two verses about the whatever you do, and then we're gonna swing back and look at these six categories of people. So let's pray, and then we're gonna dive in. Heavenly Father, and we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it transcends time, that no, whatever we do in whatever culture we live in, these words apply to us and these words matter. And so we just pray that we would be people who would submit ourselves to your word, that we would rank ourselves underneath your word, um, and that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit and your word, you would transform us from the inside out. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus's precious name. Amen. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24 says this, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Now, if you were paying attention when the passage was read uh, earlier in the service, you know that Paul gives us six categories of people uh, detailing some very difficult ways of living. In fact, I would go so far as to say that some of us in the room likely at some point in the reading of that passage stopped and said, nope. I have absolutely no intention of living that way, or that part doesn't apply to me at all. And what Paul does here is in his whatever we do statements, he gives us an anchor point about the gospel and shows us that all of our peopling should flow from the gospel and should cause us to be different types of people than what the rest of the world expects us to be. We are changed, we're different people. So Paul starts by saying, whatever you do. Now consider what is included in that statement. And it's not a trick question. It's whatever you do. It's that whole 80 years plus or minus of your life. It is your everything. It is the time you're alone. It's the time you're with your other people. And so we're gonna focus on the peopling part of that today. Because when he says, whatever you do, do it from the heart, that applies to how we interact with people. And that heart that you have is the part of you that causes you to do stuff. We, uh, I like to call our, our heart the decision-making engine of our life. Our heart is really our, our will. It, it, it is the part that just tells us, you're going to do this. So it's kind of crazy if your heart is the part of you that is your will that causes you to do stuff, why would Paul have to tell us to do anything from our heart? Because we can't help but do stuff from our heart. Why would he say that? Well, hold on to that because we're going to get to it. Because he says this, what? As something done for the Lord. See, as Christians, something remarkable has happened to us that we don't often consider. We've been given a new heart a new will. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, God is talking to the Israelites about this glorious day in the future where he will restore them to perfect relationship with him. And this is how it's described in Ezekiel 11, starting in verse 19. He says, I will give them integrity of heart 
and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see what this is saying? The context is the children of Israel, but I think that this can be applied to every single one of us. What happens is we start out with a heart of stone and that heart of stone does not want to follow God. It does not want to follow his ordinances. It does not want to practice his things. It does not want to be his people. But what he does is he rips out this heart of stone and he gives us, I love this phrase, an integrity of heart. And that integrity of heart wants to follow after him. In other words, an integrity of heart means your heart is not like divided into pieces. Your will is not scattered into pieces. This is what he will one day completely do with us. But what happens now? Right here on earth, we are dragging around that heart of stone and that heart of integrity, that heart of flesh at the same time. And they're doing battle until one day in glory when they finally are fully integrated. And so what our calling is, is to live with an integrated heart right now without one part of our passion running off this way and one part of our our will running off this way. We are called to live with people of integrity where our heart is how our heart will one day be. A heart that is focused on Jesus and his will and his desires and his priorities and his fame and not our own and not for people. It's interesting that he says we do these things for the Lord and not for people. So every July, I take the month off of social media. I call it my social media fast. And it has been, I've done this for more years than I can remember. Um, and it has become a super refreshing, like kind of almost a spiritual discipline for me because it reminds me of old idols that I have uh, and new idols that have cropped up over the last year. And it, it's, it's a good time to just stop and to pursue healthier things like exercise and reading the Bible. And I always come back in August with a better perspective. And I do highly recommend and check something like that out. If it's a day or a week or a month or a year off social media, do that thing, it's great. And this year, I almost didn't do it. Not only did I almost not do it, I I considered actually just pushing it off until August. And I considered that for the stupidest reason possible. And it's this, I am planning a couple motorcycle trips. I took one this past week and I wanted to post online about it so you could see my pictures. No, I am not kidding you. I'm such an idiot that I was like, you know what? I'll just not do the social media fast until August so I can show you pictures. Because what was I concerned about? People. I'm a dummy. As followers of Jesus, we ultimately should, with a heart of integrity, do everything for an audience of one. I love what he says, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. Now, please don't misread this because it's too easy. It doesn't say if you live this way, you're gonna get a reward. It says you're going to get a reward of an inheritance, so live this way. Doesn't that make all the difference in the world? We aren't motivated by earning. We're not motivated by doing so somehow we're gonna get some great inheritance. We've already been given, we're already guaranteed it. And, and one day we'll have that full heart of integrity. We'll get that full inheritance of the Lord. We're told in scripture that Jesus, his inheritance is us. And our inheritance is his inheritance. And so that is all guaranteed one day. And so we're motivated by the fact that that is a reality. That it's sitting up there in glory for us. And so we should just, we're just gonna live different now in light of that truth. Because 
you serve the Lord Christ. Everything is for him. The bag is secured. Jesus has secured this inheritance for you. And I love the fact that he uses this word, serve. Because that word serve, when he says you serve the Lord Christ, in the original language, Greek can be translated slave. Bond servant. You are a slave. That's kind of an odd thing for the Apostle Paul to say. You're a slave, especially in the Roman culture, because in the Roman Empire, one-third of of the people living in the empire were slaves. One-third. And some of them were slaves in the way we think of slaves. Uh, Some of them were war prisoners that had been captured. Some of them were criminals, and they were serving out their sentence as slaves. Some of them were in so much financial debt that they sold themselves or their family into slave to pay off the debt. There's all kinds of different sorts of slavery. We tend to think of one category because of our cultural experience. There were all kinds of categories. But the thing is, it didn't matter what type of category of slave you were, you were, for the period of time that you were a slave, be that your whole life or a short period of time, you were completely and utterly owned by your master. And that makes it such a crazy thing for him to say. He says, you are a servant, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus. It's an odd statement. And it's a biblical one. You know what you'll see if you go read through your Bible. Abraham, you know Father Abraham? Many son. Many son, Father Abraham. If you're singing that, that's because you went to VBS as a kid and you remember it. So send your kid to VBS this week. There you go. Um, so, right? So Father Abraham is described in Scripture as a slave of God. So is Joshua. So is David. So is Isaiah. So is Jesus. In fact, Paul and and, and Timothy and James and Peter and Jude all describe themselves as slaves of Jesus. They look at that as a noble thing to be completely and utterly owned by Jesus. They, they, They see that as something that sets them free from this world. That they're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to this world. But now they're not a slave to any of those things. They're completely and utterly owned by the perfect master that one could have, Jesus, who, who himself became a servant, himself became a slave, himself ranked himself underneath everyone so that he may lift those that he's going to save. This is the cohesive center of this whole passage. Whatever you do, especially your peopling, do it from the heart with a heart of integrity as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you'll receive your inheritance from the Lord because you serve the Lord Jesus. This is the center point of this passage. And from this center, we can now radiate out. And we can look at these six categories he gives us as examples. And remember, none of us are all of them. All of us are some of them. (laughs) But we can see how we can people as a people of integrity. So let's work our way through this passage. Verse 13 or 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now I'm going to be as delicate and clear as I can be because of the cultural moment that we live in. We're living in an age where in one sense we're told that men and women are virtually interchangeable. 
that there's no distinctions, no differences between men and women. We're told that on one hand. And then on the other hand, we're told that marriage and gender are completely redefined. It's kind of like an odd kind of cultural moment, right? But what Christianity does is Christianity assumes that when we're talking about marriage, we're talking about the union of two necessarily different beings, this man and woman, who are joined together as one, and in that joining, they have different roles and responsibilities in that union. And, and this is a gospel thing. It's one of the way that married people in a, a Christian community, we just live differently than the world around us. And one of the ways we do that is... Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says. And the problem is that word submission has, has, has taken a brutal beating in our culture. We have put the word submission into a submission hold. Right? Isn't that what you think of when you think of submission? A submission hold? You know what that is in professional wrestling or other types of wrestling? A submission hold is you're beating the snot out of somebody and then you hold them down and you hold them in such a painful position that they have no choice but to bend to your will. Right? That's what a submission hold is in wrestling. You got to kind of tap out. And the problem is we've got that so ingrained in our head that we read this passage and we think that that's what this is saying. But the word in Greek, the original language in which this is written, is this is a military term. This says that there's kind of a commander who, who, who sets the ranks in order of what they want to do to accomplish the task that they're trying to accomplish. And, and the people in the ranks, they voluntarily give in in order to follow that main purpose. There's a better word picture for us that I think we should use instead of submission in our culture because we get it better. And it's the word Yield. I think that's a more perfect word for us in our culture right now because we understand that. More than one car shows up in an intersection at the same time, there's rules of the road, right? And of course, in Michigan, they both sit there and go, no, no, you, no, 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 you, no, 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 you, no, 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 you. And that's biblical too because we're told in scripture, we are to submit to one another. So in one sense, we're all to submit to one another just like a Midwestern person in traffic. But there are actual rules to the road. We know that one car is to submit to the other car and we know which one it is. And it doesn't mean that the person in the car that is submitting has a less important journey that they're on. That their destination doesn't matter. It just means for the orderly flowing of traffic, one of them is going to have to submit, is going to have to yield to the other. And, and, and what happens is submission is only submission when there's opposing traffic. See, submission is not submission when there's agreement. When there's agreement, there's no need for submission because everyone's rowing in the same direction. Submission happens when there's an impasse and a decision has to be made and you have to decide which way to go and you don't know which one. One of you is gonna have to yield and in scripture it says the wives yield. Now, some people immediately look at this and say, well, wait a minute, that's just a cultural thing from the first century. But the consistent teaching in Scripture, in the New Testament, in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Corinthians, anchors this concept all the way back to creation with the first married couple, Adam and Eve, and we're told that Christian marriage is infused with this gospel meaning. We're told in Ephesians as a picture of Jesus and the church. It's a gospel proclamation for us as each partner plays their role. And here's the role of the husband. 
It says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. In Ephesians, it expands on this idea to show us that husbands follow Jesus' lead, that we have to love our wives, for those of us who are married, the way Jesus loves the church, how he presents her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, that he looks at her and decides to lay his life down for her. And you, you uh, get this in your head. Husbands, if your wife has a stinky attitude, if she hurts you and she rejects you, your job is to lay down your life for her and serve her. And we think about lay down in my life for like, oh, I'm going to jump into traffic for her. No, no. It, it means you're going to lay down your preferences, your desires, your wants. Your job is to do what Jesus did and it is to rank yourself as the lowest person in your family to lift everyone else up. That's what you do. You serve. And since the Garden of Eden, since all this is anchored into the Garden, men have had the same two tendencies we see over and over and over in Scripture and in our lives. Men have a tendency to dominate or become passive. And a passive man doesn't step up to protect his wife, his family. And I'm not talking about stereotypical macho stuff. The problem is we've thrown out masculinity with the toxic. Let's get rid of the toxic. Let's keep the masculinity. Still be a man. Which is in the relationship with your wife, don't talk negatively behind her back. Don't allow, don't talk negatively to her face. Don't let anyone else talk about her that way. My kids, when they were little, they knew. Our phrase in our family was, no one messes with my wife. That's what, when they mess with my wife, she ceased to be their mom in that moment. She was my wife. And no one gets to do that. Husbands, this is your job. You love your wife. You rank yourself underneath her. You are not bitter toward her regardless of how she is toward you. And to both husbands and wives, let me quote my friend Trike. He says, at the end of the day, you can only do your verse. Men, do your verse. Women, do your verse. Don't worry about the other person. We've only got two down. It's been fun so far, huh? <laughs> Four more to go. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I used to be a youth pastor here at Riv, in fact, um, and when I would teach this passage to teenagers, I always got the same response every time, literally every time. Well, what if my dad tells me to murder someone? Because it is so rampant in our culture that dads are telling their kids to go murder someone, right? <laughs> like, like, first of all, dad's not going to tell you that. Uh, second of all, the chances, even though they're, they're, uh, they're minuscule, it may happen, and you do have a verse. In Acts 5, you're told to obey God rather than man. If that happens, you're good. You don't have to murder somebody. Um, but in everything else, everything else, <laughs> obey your parents. Why? Because it pleases Jesus. What if mom is wrong? Doesn't matter. What if dad is being a little bit of a jerk that day? It doesn't matter. Your job is to cheerfully obey. Now again, let me just say this. If there's abuse, if there's legitimate abuse, if there's something like that going on, get an authority, sort that out. Same thing in marriage, same thing with kids. Legit, just, that's a different story. But if your parents just have harder rules than your friend's parents do, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> Obey them in everything because it pleases the Lord. And don't worry, your dad gets a verse too. Your mom doesn't, 
Not surprising, but your dad does. It isn't actually surprising. I've often wondered, why is this? No, it's not surprising because dads do this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Remember what I said earlier about men being either passive or dominant? We don't just do that to our, our, our wives. We do that to our kids. And it exasperates them. It discourages them. It damages children. If you lean toward being passive, your natural instinct is just to abdicate your role to others. You'll expect your wife to be responsible for everything that happens at home. You'll expect the school to do all the teaching of your kid. You'll expect church to handle all the discipling of your kid and teaching them about Jesus. You're just passive. You watch Sports Center all day instead of engaging with your children. And that exasperates children when they can't get dad off the screen. And one day, I think God will show up on the scene like he did to Adam and say, hey, where were you? If you lean toward being dominant, your natural instinct will be to strike fear into your family by being harsh or domineering or selfish. You may not even realize that you're doing it, but your children might be afraid when they hear your footsteps. Listen, your, your kids should never be afraid of you. Don't exasperate your children. Don't lead your children in such a way that they're exhausted by your set of expectation on their life. Instead, encourage your kids. Now this gets tricky next. <laughs> verse 21. We did verse 21. Verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Now, when we read this in our American culture right now, um, it gets under our skin just to even read those words because as a culture, we have seen the atrocities of the African slave trade and it still haunts our country. It still ripples into our modern day race relations today. And as I mentioned earlier, in Rome, about one third of the Roman Empire, well, the people... Paul was writing to were slaves of some sort, some that was like our, our slaves and a lot of slaves that were different than that. Why would Paul write anything like this? Why wouldn't Paul just say, slaves, it's time to revolt. Jesus has set you free. Time to drop the chains. I have noodled on that so much for decades. I had a long conversation with a guy last year who works tirelessly right now to set modern day slaves free. And you may not realize this, but today there are nearly 50 million slaves in the world. The African slave trade may have had a ripple effect on our country, but our country has one of the smallest numbers of slaves by percentage as the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, there's so much slavery that, that we wrestled through these passages together, this guy and I talked about all this. And I think, and this is Noel's noodling on it and I might be wrong. Why did Paul not just say, Jesus has set you free here? I think the main reason is that the early church, including the apostle Paul, were so convinced that Jesus was returning every, any second. And in other passages, he said, listen, whatever situation you find yourself in, married or single or slave or free, he goes, just stay that way. <laughs> now, why would he even say that? Because he was expecting that any moment Jesus was going to return. And what he was mostly concerned about was that people came to faith in Jesus and they lived their lives in their present reality as faithfully as they could because Jesus was coming back any second. That's what I think. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't put this here on purpose. We can't just skip over this. 
And I think it can apply to us both directly and indirectly because many of you are slaves. According to Proverbs 22, it says the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. If you don't pay off your credit card every month, you're a slave. You got a student loan, you're a slave. You got a mortgage, you're a slave. You got a car loan, you're a slave. Work your tail off and pay those payments. (laughs) Make the payments. Don't just skip over those payments and get yourself out of slavery as fast as humanly possible. (laughs) That's the direct implication. This indirect implication is if Paul says this for slaves, can we at least say this applies to employees? (laughs) Can we at least say that? Listen, he says, don't work only when you're being watched. You find yourself spending time on social media and switching your screen as soon as your boss walks in the room? That should say something. If your habit is to not work or to work as little as humanly possible, our culture right now is changing. And our culture right now just says, work the bare minimum. All you gotta do, just the bare minimum, just to get by, to get your paycheck. And, 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 and if you have to work 1% greater than the bare minimum, you better be paid 15% more, right? That's how our culture says it. But this passage says, work wholeheartedly as if you are working for Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we should be chained to our desk like slaves. But remember, Jesus is your ultimate boss, which means there are no dead-end jobs. Some of you shuffle paper all day. Do it to the glory of Jesus. Some of you dig holes and fill holes all day long. Right? You're a dentist. Um, just, just, Just do that wholeheartedly. I really believe that Christ's followers should be the company's best employees. It doesn't matter if you're flipping burgers, performing heart surgeries, stocking shelves at Walmart. I really don't believe any one of us should ever be fired for not performing at our job. Work wholeheartedly. And the next one, verse Chapter four, verse one, masters deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Again, why didn't he just say, set your slaves free? Well, first of all, there's this picture of you have a good master in Jesus. And the second is, man, indirectly, this is a great principle for bosses. If you're a boss or a manager or a supervisor, don't treat your employees as slaves. Look at these great words, justly and fairly. Would your employees say that that's you? You're just and you're fair in how you deal with them. We do that because we have a a master in heaven who is fair and just with us. Now, it seems so weird if you're reading through Colossians that he just talks about this all of a sudden, right? This whole thing just feels strange, but it's not. This is a huge if-then statement in the book of Colossians. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, how you people with others will change in every relationship. Your family, your work, your neighbors, everything will change. Which is why he can say, whatever you do, do it from the heart as for something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. 
you will spend 44% of your life roughly with people. That's a lot of your life. How are you gonna spend it? Every little bit of peopling you do preaches a sermon to our world. So wives, when you submit to your husband, you preach a sermon about how Jesus submitted to his father in heaven. Husbands, when you love your wife and you're not bitter toward her, you preach a sermon about how Jesus responds to the church and loves the church. When children obey their parents, they preach a sermon about Jesus, who it actually says in scripture, he obeyed his father in heaven, stepping into human flesh. When a fathers don't exasperate their children, but they encourage them, they preach a sermon of a great father in heaven who loves his children. When employees work wholeheartedly and not just when they're being watched, they're preaching a sermon that their whole life is under the lordship of Jesus. When masters and bosses act fairly and justly, they're preaching a sermon about a fair and just God that, that, that every single day is fair and just toward them so they are fair and just toward their employees. This is what it's all about. We don't do any of these things to try to earn some favor in heaven but as a declaration to the world around us that God has saved us through Jesus, that he came to earth and he lived out every single one of these things, all six of these things he lived out in his flesh here on earth. And then he died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and now our job is to preach the sermon that points to him. This is what we do. It's a declaration that Jesus has saved us and he can change people from the inside out and make us look a little bit weird to the world around us. But it's the kind of weird that declares a gospel sermon every single day. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for difficult parts of scripture like this one. And we just pray that we would be people who submit to you and to your word. We thank you that um, you have not left us alone in this stuff, but you've given us each other and you've given us the Holy Spirit in our lives to help transform us from the inside out. And so we just pray that you would do that. Uh, we thank you um, for Jesus and we just pray that we would live a lives um, that, are, that are worthy of the master that we serve and that we would live knowing that one day that inheritance is waiting for us. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.